All right, golf nerds, we're back. Golf spiritual leader, along with one of the uh, kindest, uh, calmest voices, Coach Tim, mental performance coach, O'ConnorGolf.ca. Fooled another one. (laughs) It's unbelievable, really. Yes, está muy tranquilo. Um, we'll get to our guest, who is anything but tranquil, coming up here in a minute or two. Tim, what can you say? We're uh, grateful. We're blessed, actually, to be uh, supported by these fine folks. Of course, I'm talking about... This is actually cool. It's TaylorMade Golf, of course, and the tour response striped golf ball. Now, of course... The entire family of uh, TaylorMade products, but today, introducing the Tour Response Stripe Ball from TaylorMade. Have you seen this? It's got the little... Oh, yeah. I talk about a great little thing, especially on the greens, right? Exactly. Tell you how well you're stroking it. Play Easy now. Come on. <clears throat> Play in color. I know. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm the only immature one. Play in color with performance and alignment that's impossible to ignore. Learn more at TaylorMadeGolf.ca. Good rhyming there. I'm sorry, sir? Good rhyming there. And um, I don't have mine on because I'm cold. Although I see what you did with yours. Who is OscarBravo.com? Timmy's wearing one of our uh, new polos. I gotta say, man. I, I, I don't know that I'm qualified. It's like... Uh, you know, I've never owned a shirt quite like this. You know, like sometimes, be like I'm a $20 bottle of wine guy. When people start throwing around like 100 and $150 bottles of wine, I'm like, I don't know. It seems fine to me. Well, these shirts, these polos, these t-shirts are at a level beyond, you know, anything most golfers have had a chance to, uh, to, to sample. That's right. That's right. I feel like I need to walk around with a force field. You need to, you need to there walk you around go. with a force field and and abstain from mustard and <laughs> ice cream ketchup he'd be a good boy okay just back up a little bit because you're sort of past it there you go um oh, okay. what can you there you go now you sound like yourself tell us a little bit about well, what you're wearing is the the uh, the collars are very um sturdy but the material the shirts hard to describe really and what you're talking about is not getting food on it i get it man <laughs> well, I just, I never had a shirt that just felt so good against my skin. And then, you know, once we get summer back here, I mean, we had it for what, four days or so? Yeah. Now it's back to winter. Um, I really look forward to, to wearing it, actually playing golf. Yeah, it's going to be and, something else. And, and I, you know, I don't want to sweat in it. It sounds yucky, but it'll be interesting to see how it uh, performs. You know, that. What do they call it? That wicking, uh, wicking yes. quality, yes, and all of that. And well, these so. shirts are so good. They actually have somebody that follows you around and wicks the sweat off your back. It's quite something. Oscar Bravo. <laughs> Who is OscarBravo.com? Find out. Oscar's only created one hundred pieces of each of these items. They never make the same design twice, and so you will be one of the only people you know that has one of these. I feel like I should take one of these, Howard, and, and like frame it. 
and just put it up on my wall. You yes, know, like, sir. It's like a print, you know, like 48 of 100 or something. You know, it wouldn't be a bad idea. Speaking of unique, our uh, guest uh, coming back on the program, another friend of the show. I had a chance to meet him uh, in the mid-90s. One day I was doing this uh, puppet show on City TV called Ed's Night Party, and I looked out in the audience, and there was my buddy with this fresh-faced young touring pro named Robert Dameron, and we've been uh, friends-slash-acquaintances ever since. Uh, on the Golf Channel, you've seen him do He's doing his work these days on PGA Tour Live Radio. And jokey jokes aside, man, oh, man, talk about a next athlete that was... Born to do broadcasting, Robert is amongst the best. He brings a unique perspective, as well as a tour-quality golf game to uh, to the proceedings. I- I'm sorry, we did talk about TaylorMade, the uh, golf ball. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I guess you just joining? Yeah. Are you just joining the program now? Jesus. I'm going to have my 66th birthday this week. I think that's the problem. <laughs> I mean, let's, for breakfast. To be authentic, oh. I, just to be authentic, Robert, Tim, I don't, I don't, I don't mind, because listen, I, this happens to me all the time. Tim just sent me a note in the chat. Aren't we, aren't we supposed to talk about TaylorMade? Yeah. <laughs> I remember. He talked about the ball and how it's good for lining up on parts and, and how that's this right, ball has right. stripe on And I'm like, I'm, I'm, he, you he stop all me. into it. And I'm like, Is he, he's, <laughs> is he going to remind you in a minute that we have to do the OB shirt, the Oscar Bravo shirts? Did Tim, were you here at the, be- <laughs> at the right. beginning of the show? That's really funny to me. <sighs> yeah, especially for a guy who talks about being fully present all the time. You know, I, I, hey, Robert, I don't, I do this for a living. I don't get stumped very often, but that stumped me. I was like, that was good. Oh, yeah. I, I'm just glad I was here for it. I, I've never seen a person completely blank. Not at this time of morning in either. Oh, I mean, man. At night in the middle of the night, somebody gets a little too heavy into something, maybe. Oh, yeah. He just absolutely went blank on us, right? You know, I've been thinking a lot about Robert lately because he was on the uh, Humble and Fred show a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, because yeah. which was great, he's always fantastic guest. Whatever we, uh, whenever we talk, but but something came up on that show was the Thursday of the Masters, and Robert had won a golf tournament on the PGA Tour. I believe it was two thousand and one. Yes, and one of the reasons I've been thinking about it, well, two things actually. Robert won in the era of Tiger Woods, which is, I think, for a a lot of tour players, an interesting asterisk on their career. Because years from now, you'll be able to tell your grandkids and whatever, you know, I I played in that. I played against that guy. I know what it's like to win when he was on the tour. But the thing that I've been thinking about, Timmy, for the last two weeks, is that... paying attention. I really am. Okay, Tim, Tim, by the way, Taylor May's got a new ball. It's got a line on it. Yeah, have you heard about it? It's good for lining up putts. That's right. Yeah. And how they stroke it? <laughs> that, yeah. Remember that? Remember that? Remember stroking joke? Right. And it got a little inappropriate for a moment. You know, maybe you had a stroke. Are you can you do you smell toast? That might have been it. <laughs> Almonds. Are you Wait smelling? What, my left arm feels weird. Oh. Okay. But I, here's what I felt bad about Robert. That year. And I, and I didn't, I didn't mean to put him on the spot, but I asked him on the show. I said, "Hey, did you get to play in the Masters?" And sadly, the answer was no. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a quick question about that? So you have the sure. joy of winning a tournament. Right. Did, did at some point on that Sunday, after the interviews and all the celebrations, did you think, "God dang it, I'm not going to play in the Masters"? Not for a split second. I, I, I know that it's. <sighs> 
a great perk. I know it's something that all players want to do. And if you're good enough, you know, you play in a lot of them. If you're not, you don't. But um, no, not for a second. I, I was more of the, since I was six or seven, this is my dream to win on tour. Um, and, and I accomplished it. And all the perks weren't really part of my thought process. Right. Now, I, I enjoyed the knowing that the paycheck was going to be deposited, even though I had just gotten married like two weeks prior. And I knew that we could just cut in half. You know, I'm not worried. <laughs> well, the thing is, she's getting half of it. She won half of this tournament. You know, that uh, works. But um, no, I really didn't consider it. And, and it's not something that ever troubled me. Um, that's just the rules. Had I played better, I would have gotten in anyway. It, they changed it to where not a win, but a top 50 in the world and then a few other small categories from uh, European Tour and, and those kind of money list things, but uh, now DP World Tour. Uh, never never bothered me. Mm-hmm. Never bothered me. I played the other majors. I, I um, Would I have liked to? Sure. But it's not, it's not the regret that some people think it would be. Mm-hmm. Not to me anyway. I mean... You know, I've played there. I've been there. It is a cathedral. It's it's unbelievable. Um, but yeah, I, I'm too old to worry about that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know what I think about is um, that maybe sometimes winning isn't all it's cracked up to be. Maybe it's not everything. Maybe it's sometimes well, it's just. Um, I know. I know. It feels really good, mm-hmm. but um, it doesn't. It. I don't know. I, there's lots of people who win tournaments, Robert. Who you probably know, Robert. Who you know who won and then still feel dissatisfied and still need to prove themselves and stuff. For sure. Um, I think also, you know, at the end of the day, when your career's up, you'd like to have a lot of cash. Uh, And so do the players that like a Briny Baird to bring up a name who got without ever winning, but he was a wealthy enough fella. Now I assume he is. I haven't seen him a long time. I assume he took care of his money, but uh, does he look back with regret not winning? more than a guy that did win but somehow mismanaged his money and was broke on the way out. Mm-hmm. Who would have the most regret? I, I know the old saying, you know, we play for trophies and, and I, I play to win and second place sucks. And, you know, getting getting rich is pretty nice too, I think. I think that's it. They're not staying amateur and playing out there. They, mm-hmm. they want to make some some cheddar and they're they are making it now and tim brings up an interesting point too about you know sometimes you hear athletes say hey i got to where i wanted to go and it was great but i was still i had to get up the next morning and take the kids to school and we had a fight about the who didn't get the groceries but when you went to the next tournament and this is something i don't think i've ever asked you and you're a good guy and everyone would have known you from being around bay hill and you're a friendly character but did guys well i'm going to put it this way when you went to the next event, whenever that was, after your win, mm-hmm. was there a, a change in the way people treated you, or was there? Did people were there? What was it like when you got to the range the next time? Now there is uh, a contingent of of players out there. You know, you've got a hundred and some odd at each tournament. So, and there are a few people that judge your worth as a person by how you're playing. You know, they want to kiss up to you when you're playing good and winning and then when you're not they forget about you i remember jim gallagher telling me that you know he was a great player won five times or six Ryder cupper um and he said it was amazing when i lost my game some of my buddies that just wouldn't talk to me anymore but but to answer your question and i'll tell you my maybe my all-time favorite story and it's amazing she's still married to me um <laughs> i went to colonial was the next week so it was like just a 30 minute 45 minute drive from dallas to fort worth and and 
there's just a lot of congratulations. No one treated me differently per se that week, but I was very light and airy, I'll say, and, um, uh, you know, happy, obviously. I played, I made the cut. I don't remember playing particularly well, um, but it, it was, yeah, a lot of fun, a really fun week. Mm-hmm. But, but I'll, I'll get to my story, maybe my favorite story. So Colonial has a very small parking lot, and you, you have to valet when you're a player. You can't just park somewhere. You have to valet. So the valet's there for the players. Uh, I think it's like Wednesday, and I'm waiting at the valet with my wife. And a camera crew from a local news station came up to me, and they wanted to do some interviewing and stuff. And, uh, you know, just what's it like to win last week, blah, blah, blah. Same stuff we're talking about. So we end. My car pulls up. I get in the car, and I look back, and I notice that the camera's on my wife. They're filming her. So she starts, she starts walking towards the car with a big strut. You know, she's got the camera on her. You know, she's a, like a reality princess, uh, you know, on TV there for a second. And as soon as she reaches for the door with the camera on her, I lock the car and take off. <laughs> Left her standing right there. Um, I, I, I don't know what came over me that moment, but I would give a million dollars to that footage somewhere. It's That's really funny. Oh, it's left her. You know, I had to bring her down a pick or two. She got a little pop. <laughs> I, don't, I remember, um, so maybe uh, Brad Bryant would be in that yeah. Baird category. Yeah. He was such a great guy. I remember being at the Canadian Open. And he tells about being on the on the tee being, it was in Abilene, Texas. And he's being mm-hmm. introduced. And he's playing with Ben Crenshaw. And, and, the, and the starter goes, please welcome to the tee, winner of, was it the 1982 Masters or something? You know, winner of the Milwaukee Open. This uh, five Ryder Cup teams to the mm-hmm. tee. Um, ben Crenshaw. And then he goes, now welcome to see Brad Bryant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice all around fella. Yeah. He turns to the starters and says, don't you ever do that again. The, uh, by the what way, if, you, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're watching, what's your, I'm sorry, go ahead. What's his nickname? Dirt. Dr. Dirt. Dr. Dirt. Um, yeah. If you're watching on Tim's uh, f- uh, YouTube feed, what you may have seen is uh, Mrs. Damron uh, crossing the yeah. screen and giving you the finger. Yes, she did. Yes. She heard the story Very, yeah. that I was telling. Love that. I got a text, too. I haven't I haven't uh, seen what it says, but I'll, I'll share it with you here. Uh, can I say the F word? Of course you can. I hate this fucking story. <laughs> that's really good. See, that's what I love about the show so far. There's been a lot of authenticity. By the way, uh, I don't know that story about Crenshaw and Brad Bryant or uh, Dr. Dirt or whatever. But yeah. if you want to go, a similar thing happened uh, back in the 2000s when Phil and Tiger were paired together. And it's on YouTube. You can see it, Tim. Where basically they started saying, and on the tee, and they started listing off everything that Tiger's done. And about halfway through, Phil Mickelson goes, yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> All right, okay. And it's pretty cute, even though, you know, I can't stand Phil. Um, yeah, it was, it was a great moment. It was a great moment. Um, speaking of the tour, so so you go on, you're, you're a tour winner. That's got to have a feeling to it. Do mm-hmm. tour winners get different groupings slash tea times than other guys? Yes. Uh, you get it actually for the whole time that you're, um, the whole time that you're exempt on that win. So two years plus after the win, you go into category a, there's a, B and C. It used to be that way. It's a little different now, but a, B and C, uh, a is the tour winners and they got the sweet spot in the middle. 
B would be the Briny Bayards, the, the journeymen who haven't won recently or haven't won, but are, are established tour players. And C are the Q school corn fairy guys that are rookies that are just getting out. Maybe the Monday qualifiers, that kind of stuff. So yeah, you do go into a, a different category and, and you start, you know, getting paired with a higher class of, uh, of golfer when you get into uh, what, what does that, that do to your tea time? So like what, in those three categories, where do guys play? Uh, a, or, uh, a is the winners. They would be kind of in the middle, not the first off, probably the starting at about the fourth group off the, you know, first or 10th tee, depending on the day. So you're still morning and afternoon time okay. on Thursday, Friday or vice versa. Uh, but you're in the middle of that pairing. It's like I said, fourth, fifth, sixth, that kind of grouping. And then after that, the later, like the guys that, that bring the flag stick in at the end, essentially the last group, those are the rookies okay. and the money qualifiers <laughs> right. and stuff like that. And then the, and the, the longest the drive, the, and the longest oh, yeah. drive thing. That's right. And the closest, sleepers, we closest the to the hole. Yeah. The first, the first group would be guys like me for the most of my career. Um, the first or second pairing, you know, you're starting it off. You got nice fresh greens to play on, on uh, Thursday or Friday. Oh, that that's seeing the positive side of it, isn't it? <laughs> I am not a morning person. I always hated it, but you know, I was playing golf for a living, so it wasn't that bad. Um, I'm not sure where you want to go, Tim, but I was thinking about this uh, series on Netflix, Full Swing. Yeah, and one of the things, the first, I'd like to get your opinion of it. One of the things, I, one of the takeaways for me was just how much work these guys do, not just on off days, but even on the days that they're going to play. That they're in there warming up, doing a light workout. They're there hours before their tea time. Yeah, I think I know what the answer is going to be. But what was Robert Dameron's routine on tour? Oh, not quite the same. <laughs> um, I love carry out food on the way, you know, like pickup or, or Domino's or something like that from the course back to the room. Sit there and you know, take your shirt off and eat a pizza and get it all over yourself. Nice, and stuff like that. The, the gym was. The gym, the, the fitness trailer was a place for me to like not do anything fitness wise, but to uh, uh, like lay on the heating pad to loosen my back up while I read the newspaper or watch TV or something like that. So I felt like laying on the heating pad was great for me because I was accomplishing something <laughs> worthwhile, which is loosening my back up without doing a damn thing. Just laying. So that's how I, I kind of went wasn't it, wasn't it Mark Kalkovecchia that said that when he thought about working up, he would just lay down until that feeling went away? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good, a great. That's the way I actually feel. I'm like, I wish I would have gone back to and worked out. It, but, but frankly, back in our day, uh, and Tim, you'll know this, working out was a big no-no. It's, exactly. you, want, you want no muscle. You don't want to bunch yourself up and get muscular. And it wasn't – there were always a couple guys, the Keith Clearwaters, the Bill Glassons who were fit. But it wasn't until Tiger came along. That we said, okay, uh, you know, this is that's silly. Uh, you know, playing tennis was was terrible. Swimming, oh my God, don't swim. You know, your your tennis, you're working one side of your body, and and then swimming, you're tightening everything up. I, you know, so I fit better in that category because I didn't want to work out. Wow, Today's perfect. era, I would be off. Awesome. Well, wasn't it Johnny Miller who? Took time off, and then he, uh, I think, didn't he, like, buy a ranch, and he built fences and stuff, and then he put on this muscle, and then, whoa, he lost his game for Mm -hmm. a bit. And he was, like, the the primary reason you're not supposed to bulk up and all that. Yeah, but we don't know the truth. Of course. That's why his swing changed or not. It probably wasn't that. I mean, all our swings are are, uh, on lease, actually. None of us really own them because – 
at any moment they can leave you and fall apart. I thought uh, Johnny Miller just got older and got the yips. That happened too. Uh, yeah, that that putter he hated putting. He tried everything when he wanted Pebble after being a broadcaster. Yeah, like 1994, a, I think so. Yeah, yeah. He had drawn like a red dot on the shaft below the grip, and he stared at that as he was putting. <laughs> God, what a I ridiculous mean, game! In desperate times. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. It, it drives us. It's amazing we're all sane. But back to uh, 1997. I'm not sure. Were you on the tour when Tiger started, or you got your card? Yes. Okay. So I, I was his first full year was my first full year. He had won, you know, Disney. Yeah, ninety six. He won the yeah. Correct. Oh, that's right. I was, yes. So our first full years were the same. So there's a famous interview, and I'm sure Curtis has, you know, yeah. regretted saying it for thirty five or thirty or whatever, it's twenty five years. But when he said to Tiger, when Tiger said, you know, all I want to do is win, and Curtis said, Well, you'll learn. Yeah, you know. Again, not no no knock on Curtis, who I really like, but you were a guy coming out at that time, and you know, again, you won during the Tiger Woods era, and you just mentioned that when Tiger came on, people started taking more you know in, interest in their fitness. Not you, but other people. Um, I don't know. Think I've asked you this before, but as a guy that had been around golf his whole life, you know, Robert grew up around Arnold Palmer and played at Bay Hill. Did you? At the time, now that you're an analyst and a broadcaster, could you have at the time really understood what you were seeing? With Tiger or yeah, with my with, own? No, no, with Tiger. Yeah, you know. Not in the beginning. I tell you, not until... Okay, he won the Masters right off the bat, 97 by 12, after shooting 40 on the front. Um, and that was the most unbelievable, at that time, You know, run of golf that pretty much anyone had ever seen. Um but he also, I believe it was his second year when he was still working with Butch and trying to change something. He only won once, I think. He won the Bell right. South one year, like his second year. So he, was, he wasn't the perfect golfing machine yet. Uh, I don't think it was until the, the four majors in a row and winning the, the U.S. Open by, by 15 at Pebble Beach that we realized this kid is, is on a different plane than the rest of us. And, and, and also, players like me, like, think back to uh, uh, your National Open, ca- Canada, Grant Waite, when he took Tiger right to the end. Tiger hit that iconic shot. Uh, Bob May took him to the, you know, the, the end at, at the PGA. Those guys aren't supposed to beat Tiger. So they've got this what-the-hell attitude. You know, whatever. I lose, I lose. It was the top dogs, the Davis Loves, the the, the VJs. The, well, VJ, not so Ernie much. Els. Ernie yeah. Ernie Els. Ernie Els. That, that, that aren't used to losing. And all of a sudden, Phil. they don't think they feel. They don't think this guy's better. They know it, and they don't like that at all. Mm-hmm. And, and those guys, I don't want to say choked, but they humped up worse than the guy like, you know, I'm not supposed to beat him anyway, says Bob May, so I'll just play my game see what happens. Yeah. Faraday tells a story. I think it was from at Firestone. Uh, Tiger is, like, in the rough. It's, like, ankle deep, and he's playing with Ernie Els. Mm-hmm. And Faraday's the uh, – the, the trooper out there and tiger yeah. hits this shot, you know, four iron or something like that. And it lands like four feet from the pin and sticks. And Ernie else goes, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and Faraday's mic is open and, and Tricanian goes, was that else? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you witness a shot or two like that in which it was like, Oh my goodness. Or fuck. Um, fuck. Not, not with Tiger that I remember. Nothing. I never played with him when he did something just specifically. I didn't think he could hit that shot, and he did it. 
Um, but, you know, every shot was super high quality, but I don't remember him, you know, hitting a shot that was like, wow. Well, what was it like? Well, I don't remember you telling me this on the other day. Uh, the other day, did you play with him? Yeah. Yeah. I played. I am the, the proud owner of the tour PGA tour record of the highest round shot while playing with Tiger Woods. Well, give us the circumstance. Well, uh, this is uh, Kapalua Tournament of Champions, 2002, early, uh, 68 first round, um, and then I don't remember, but I played nice the second round, like let's just call it seven, and the Kona wind started, which is the exact opposite, makes it real tough, it was windy, and I'm paired with Tiger third round, and I started pumping it in the hay, like just that, that gross stuff that surrounds some of the and couldn't get it out, uh, out of bounds one hole. And I just lost my driver for that day on a terrible, terrible windy day. And uh, 85, little 85, Adam. Nice. Right there with Tiger. I remember even on 10, I made bogey or something. We're walking to 11. He goes, just start over, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it, started, it started just to get funny. I mean, he, he almost... He almost felt bad because I was just helpless, like a babe in the woods. <laughs> I couldn't do anything. And, yeah, it got to the point where we're just laughing. What are you going to do? Uh, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, so, yeah, so I, I do have that proud record. Until, you know, somebody beats it. I would, don't think would you say that? That's awesome. Just before I ask you this last question about tour play, was he? Yeah. So it's early in the year and, you know, it's Hawaii. What what would you say he was uh, a good guy to play with at that time? Not really. Um, you liked playing with him because of who he is and because of the gallery that came with him. I, you know, I have a I have an ego. I need a little attention, so I like seeing those people there too. Um, uh, you know, I, that's why when I lost my game, I tried to get into broadcasting so I could not slip completely into obscurity. I need attention. So mm. I, I like playing with him, but. Was he fun to play with? No, he didn't talk much. Uh, he's different. He's not, you know, it's, okay, if you and I are played, we're going to talk about whatever and you know, bullshit about this. Golf will be part of it, but then everything will be part of it. Tiger's not a conversation guy. You wonder two things, but uh, he's just a, you know, a different athlete, but a different person. There's, mm-hmm. there's many players that are much more. Uh, you mentioned Phil, um, and you're not a big fan now, especially, but, but, and he, he wasn't the best guy in the world, but if I saw I was paired with him, I knew I was going to have a nice day. Mm-hmm. He, he, he talks a lot. He follows all sports. So he can talk sports, whatever. Uh, but, but no, I, I, I was one of those guys that 100% on Tuesday afternoon when the pairings came out for the tournament would, would run to look at it, see who I, who I got stuck with, and start to either be happy or, or regret mm-hmm. that we're going to uh, – yeah. Would one of those regrets be that you noticed, oh, my gosh, I'm playing with, like, someone who might be regarded as a human rain delay? Yes. This is my attempt to segue into it. It was a great segue. This is exactly where we need to go play. Yeah. um, Yes. Uh, Some – mostly there are two categories that I hated, the slow play and then the the absolute non-talker, the guy that won't – you know is just not going to say a word. Nick Faldo, you get paired with him. Exactly. He's he's, he's slow – and he will say good luck on the first tee and thanks for the game on 18 and that is it um so yeah yeah i know like i, I know i'm just gonna have to talk to my caddy all day and i already know every story he's got so that, that well, 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 what is that like because you know none of us have played at that level but i've played at you know some pretty big tournaments and even at the highest level i've played at i've played in the canadian amateur the senior amateur the mid-am and there's still some 
Like I've never been paired with somebody that spoke zero. I've paired. I've been paired with people that didn't speak a lot, that weren't super chatty, but not. So, what is it like in a round of golf when somebody just says, "You know, see you in four or five hours," and you don't say anything? Well, and and you know, so to, again to pick on Faldo, you can start trying to talk to him, and he may answer but it's clearly uncomfortable okay. and, and you know the reputation even the first time i get paired with him you know the reputation so uh, i don't try to engage um uh, I, I remember playing with him at uh, the pga in atlanta and it was super hot and the day before i had gotten up to the tee and um i i went to the water jug you know the big igloo coolers and with the little dixie cups and uh, the marshal says, you don't want to drink that water. I go, uh, you know, it's 200 degrees outside. Why not? He goes, well, Ola Sable in the group in front of you uh, took the lid off and washed his hands in there. He dipped mm. his hands down into the ice. ice nice. And I'm like, ooh, gosh, I don't want it to get you right. Next day, I'm paired with Faldo, and I told him the story, and he had no idea what I was talking about. Just couldn't, couldn't fathom, didn't want to understand, mm-hmm. uh, didn't ask questions. like No follow-up to that. No follow-up. No, he goes, uh that was about it. Okay, well, here's my follow-up to Tim's segue, which was we mm-hmm. wanted to finish this uh, stellar interview by right. asking about slow play. It's been a big issue the last couple of It's been an issue for a long time. At the Masters, you know, there's some theories that maybe Kepka got a little bit annoyed, whatever. Um, those rounds yeah. were taking a long time. Yeah. Patrick Cantley last week in that tournament – um, at uh, the RBC Heritage there. He had that mm-hmm. situation where the ball was up against the bulkhead. He took like 45 minutes or something. Like, you know, they had already got 60 minutes was like, come on, we want to get on. Um, Spieth so, in the playoff took forever. Spieth in the playoff. But generally, what is your thoughts about slow play? And what don't we amateurs understand about the pro game and why some of it is actually, it, it, some, there's sort of slow play built into it. Well, so first off, I would love to, and I'm the I consider myself the world's foremost expert in this, and, mm, okay. and I have all I have all the answers. <laughs> first off, let's get rid of time. You don't I don't want to talk about time of play because uh, an hour at the dentist it seems like forever. An hour getting a massage it goes very fast. So it's your pacing of play out there. If 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 and this has happened many times here at Bay Hill where I, I play around, I wait every shot. It's miserable. I get in, I see the, the head pro and I'm like, boy, it was so slow out there. And, and he looks at his watch and goes, well, you played in four hours. Mm-hmm. Like, screw you. And that's not what I'm saying. You know, the group in front of me played in four hours also, and they didn't wait a shot because they were dicking around. I behind them waited every single shot and, and had a miserable time. So I want to talk more about pacing of play and, and people go, well, it's, you know, the, on tour, the whole locations are tougher. The greens are faster. Of course. And, and the fastest player in the world playing by himself is going to play slower in a hard court, uh, in a hard situation, a hard golf course, difficult situation, as opposed to uh, playing the easy muni course where the pins are all in the, in the middle of the green. It's going to take longer. The fastest player in that field was going to take extra time hitting the shot off the bulkhead uh, that, that, that can't lay him. So even something like that, you kind of can, can forgive him for it but i think i think you want to watch the pacing of play if it's your club your marshal should not have a time par thing on his cart well he's playing in four hours and three out whatever 
if he has a gap in front of them, tell him to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think, I think there's one major rule that at club level, it's let faster groups through. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And if you're the slowest group and you used to have to let eight groups through a day, you're going to start getting pissed off and, and figure out, I got to pick up. I got to pick the speed up. Um, now, as far as tour slow play goes, it's penalties. That's all you can do. Just enforce the rule as it is. You get a warning, you get another warning, then you get penalized, then you get penalized, then you get disqualified. So, but do they, how, how far down that list do they go? Do our guys more, do they get penalized more than we even realize? No, there's been since Glenn Day got a penalty in 1993, I think it was. Um, and then that was the last slow play penalty until uh, a twosome got it at the New Orleans tournament. I can't remember who it was, uh, the, the team event in New Orleans. So, so it, since 1993, there, I might be missing one. There's been one slow play penalty on the PGA Tour. There might have been a second um, that's escaping me. But, but even if, let's say there's two. So you're telling me that, that no one has deserved a slow play penalty in 30 years on the PGA Tour that, that's played slow? Of course not. The rule just needs to be enforced, and it is not. Okay. It's not enforced at all. So what's going on there? How come it's not being enforced? My theory is uh, that they have – each of these tournaments has a pretty good idea of when it's going to end as far as being in the, the television window slot. And I think that they don't – it doesn't behoove them to try to increase that speed – because now we're going to start messing with the commercial time, the amount of time that it's actually on, on the air. Uh, that's a theory. I know that, um, you know, it's, it was kind of back in, back when I was playing one of our board members, the big business board, they suggested that we need to address slow play. And the other ones are like, no, no, just don't even worry about it. So I think they've got a rhythm as far as TV goes. And that's that's well, my my best. Deal. Two quick last questions. What was a typical round for you in terms of time, and what was the longest round you ever remember? Uh, longest round ever would have been Pebble Beach. You know, one of those uh, six plus hours at that at the uh, AT and T Pro Am. Oh, with the celebs and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if you're on Pebble and the weather's nice, that's fine. Again, let's go to that's like pacing. I'm on Pebble Beach. It's six hours, it, and I don't mind that at all because it's so beautiful. It's mm-hmm. the greatest place on earth. Uh, when you were up in Poppy Hills in the woods, which is a terrible course, um, that wasn't so much fun. And what about a typical hours. round? Like, is just an everyday tour event? What would it take you? Four fifty, four five, you know, five hours. Threesomes would be four and a half. Probably. Okay. Twosomes on the weekend. You know, it, it depends on where you were on on the list. But yeah, four and a half, and then and then two on the weekend. You could early on, you could break, you could do three and a half. Okay. So Timmy's Robert, got what, one last question for you. Would you give what advice would you give to say you know whether it's a weekend warrior or a tournament player like Howard uh, when you do get stuck with someone who's really slow and has some annoying habits that they do? What what do you suggest? There's, there's really nothing you can do. You, you know, you can keep asking them to do it, but um, to ask speed up what? or move along. Can we, can we pick up the pace? I mean, mm-hmm. you can ask, but it doesn't. You know, you you can't. Uh, Tiger doesn't change his stripes yeah. uh, that easily. So I think you just have. To Here's what would you would you suggest when they're not looking to wash your hands in the water jug? That's what I'm going to do. Yes, <laughs> that is. I think that's right. That 
some kind of little where you lay your head down on the pillow at that's night right. and you're like, well, he played slow, but that son of a bitch drank the water. He drank my, my he drank my hat, my dirty <laughs> hand my water. Dirty hand water. <laughs> Robert, Robert Dameron, one of the bright lights in uh, golf broadcasting. Always a pleasure to have you on our program. This won't be the last time in 2023, no. my friend. I would uh, enjoy a return back. Anytime. And uh, good luck uh, with the misses and that story you have uh, to pedal back again. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to. That'll, that might cost me just a little. It, listen, we're all paying. We're all paying for something. Robert Dameron, sure. thank you, my friend. Uh, listen thank for you. Robert on PGA Tour Live Radio. Uh, always a great uh, listen and a, a smart guy. He shows up uh, every once in a while on some different shows. All the best, my friend. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Tim, do you think we should uh, do the TaylorMade thing now, or should we wait until the end of the show? <laughs> I thought we were going to interview Robert Dameron. What? <laughs> That's good. When's Dameron coming on? Mind? Oh, man. I see. You know what I think? <laughs> What's that, Timmy? In defense? Um... We usually talk about uh, drivers and stuff. No, I know, I know. <laughs> Maybe that's what I missed. I know. But we didn't talk about that little itty bitty thing. Remember, we we're going to talk about the you know new gonna, Yeah, thing? you know what? We can talk about it now because that was something I that I was about to ask you. Can you remind me for the second <laughs> time today? Remind me what it is you wanted to mention, and it was the little mini driver that uh, Taylor Made's released. Yeah, I just thought that was really cool. Um, I think they call it the mini burner. Yes. And it's so instead of the usual 460cc head that we that used to be known as large and now it's just the usual deal, this one is 310ccs and it's got little weights in it and stuff and um I thought it was just really cool. Um one of the things is you can hit it off the deck. Um I just thought it was a really interesting thing for them to come up with because the the usual thing for people is to think that, well, a, a larger face means more for forgiveness. How's, mm-hmm, how's mm-hmm. that? Forgiveness. Um, but you, they were actually saying that you can still get some good pop on the ball mm-hmm. with, a, with a smaller head. Uh, but for some people who struggle with a driver – um, this might help them a lot. Uh, so I just thought it was really cool, and it just looks pretty neat, too. Yeah, it does. You know, when I was – well, I, I don't know how we – first of all, I, yeah, I've, it's not just struggle with hitting a, a bigger-headed driver, but also the dispersion for guys that, yes, you know, are looking for a little – maybe not as much distance, but a little tighter dispersion with a driver. Exactly. Um, it reminded me of when I was a kid. I worked at a golf course, and I used to clean clubs, and – and I didn't have one myself, but I knew some of the better players used to carry a two wood. Do you remember that? Oh yes, exactly. With, oh, a brassy. No, not not a brassy. I thought the brassy was like the three wood. I'm talking about. No, it no. Was a, well, never mind. Well, whatever, whatever brassy or gimlet or niblet or whatever it was, it was a it was a two wood, and it was almost like at some point that just disappeared from the landscape. Exactly. And when I saw the ad for the uh, the burner uh, that we were the tailor made sent us, I thought oh, that kind of reminds me of that. Like it's a because a two wood was kind of like a mini driver, even though they were all mini. But it was a step between your your driver and your three wood that went further than your three wood, not as far as your driver. Yeah, it'd be interesting to talk to somebody who used to say 
who played a two wood and you know what would be the scenario in which you would you would reach for that that'd be just interesting mm-hmm. to to hear but um, yeah maybe it was a similar scenario they didn't need driver on the hole but they wanted to hit it further that was before three woods went as far as they do the stealth three wood that i have is ridiculous oh exactly i hit it uh, in the lab a couple weeks ago i was like when i got around to hitting it uh, me and the guy that was fitting me great guy he said uh wow because i hit it i don't know i guess the first time i just made contact with it, it went so far i was like "Woo, that's interesting um so uh, I wanted to segue to something. I know you've been busy. Tim's been busy in his defense. Tim has been busy. He's got his head in his book. He's not just completely absent, Mike. He's not. He's been, he's working hard. A few emails have gone by the wayside, which is not like Timmy. Back and forth. I haven't seen any fourth. There's been some back, but no fourth. And you tell me that you've been, you know, knee deep in the hoopla of your, uh, your book. Yes, absolutely. I've been trying to finish this dang thing. Um, yeah, I, I've got about three to four chapters that are in draft form. You know, I just blasted them out. And now I'm use, <laughs> I'm trying to take my recovering perfectionist and duct tape them and throw them in the closet so that I can get this thing finished uh, editing it. So that's that's the stage it's at. So um, if you were like, is that, I don't know anything about real authors. What does that mean? Like you're you're going to have it done by, you know, you said you wanted to have it out by summer or? Well, I'm just focusing on getting the damn thing finished. My wife says that if I don't have it done by our anniversary on May 25th, we're not going out for dinner. Oh, buddy. <laughs> and your birthday's coming up. Yeah, tomorrow. Well, April happy 20th, birthday. 420. I know that has other implications that... That, uh, that, that would be that so people- cool if, like, you know, little Timmy O'Connor on his birthday every year just gets blasted. <laughs> <laughs> just goes down to the uh, dispensary and comes back, you know, with a giant birthday blunt. <laughs> the, the Bob Marley spliff. That's right. <laughs> well, and, and I think you mentioned 66 is what you're going to be. Yeah, exactly. You're actually younger than Fred. I think Fred's next birthday is going to be 67 in uh, wow. July. July, I think. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was uh, I was doing some journaling this morning and... I, I wrote down that, wow, if this was, if I was working someplace where they had mandatory retirement at 65, I would have been like, you know, out to pasture for a year almost now. But mm-hmm. I, I can't ever, I don't know. I struggle with that idea of retirement. I don't even, I'm not even really sure what it means. Is it, like for me, I, I don't know why I would ever stop doing what I'm doing. In exactly. All I was around, keep, uh, yeah, just why would you? I mean, you're engaged yeah. in the world, and you're a vibrant, interested, interesting person. I was around a lot of guys there in Mexico for the last nine weeks, and a lot of them, you know, are later 60s, early 70s. And, you know, I was they when they found out I was still working, and it sort of fascinated them, like, why? And I said, well, because I love what I do. I can't imagine. I said the same thing. I couldn't couldn't really imagine not doing it. Why? What would I do? I, I Freddie and I always joke on the Humble and Fred show. If, if we weren't doing that podcast, we'd be doing another podcast. There you go. But I also it'll be interesting that so whenever I get maybe I get to that stage where say I could play golf. Like there, there's I don't, you play a ton of golf. I don't know. Maybe I should just be asking you. But um, 
I know guys who are retired and they seem to play every day. Mm. Um, but they're not necessarily, they're not tournament players. They're not aspirational like you. They just like to have fun, have a couple of beers, you know, uh, see who on the skins, etc. I don't know if I'd ever be that guy. You know, I just don't know. Well, I, I can't imagine that, uh, you know, that uh, you would be, I think you'd be something more. Some you're more of an aspirational player. Uh, one of the one of my new, um, I was going to say a- aspirations, but it's more like an as- obsession. I think I told you I've been <laughs> taking Spanish classes now for four months, and then last week I engaged with a, a tutor for the first time. And uh, we were talking, and she asked me about how much time I spend golfing and how much time I've been spending on my Spanish. And I learned this new phrase: "Soy muy obsesivo." I'm it's, yeah. it's it's I'm very I'm obsessive in Spanish. Yeah, but so, I think that's you know what I don't know maybe it's just, I think that's amazing. And for things to be obsessed with, certainly better than a lot of uh, other oh, yeah. things. Oh yeah, we'll just <laughs> we'll infer. Yes, sure. Um, but I've been also, obsessed with those before. <laughs> but it's that's good for your brain, man. Yes. Everyone, you know, it's just people talk about that all the time. Um, you know, to keep your brain active as you get older, like, um, you know, physical exercise is huge. Um, doing math problems. Learn to play an uh, instrument. Doing, yeah. Yeah. Do it. Play an instrument. Do Wordle. I mean, yep. I know all kinds of people who do Wordle every freaking day. And but you know, what you're doing, I think, is a, that's a, that's wonderful. But that certainly plays your OCD trait, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, uh, you know, I have this little knob in my brain. I have another, I have another one somewhere else. All right, Tim, easy now. Come on. Immature. <laughs> um, I have this little switch where I decided when I made the decision in November in Mexico that I, I'd been dabbling and sticking around trying to learn a few phrases for years. I've been going to Mexico since 1986. I uh, had this uh, I had this novia, which is girlfriend, who lived in Chicago and then she moved to Mexico City. And when I was living in Los Angeles, I would go down to visit her and spend a few weeks at a time and picked up a few phrases. But I never really tried like what I'm doing now, which is every day. Before we came on this call today, I'd spent the last 45 minutes doing my Spanish class today Um, because I thought, what would it be? What would, how could I do if I really applied myself? But also more than that is what you said. I, uh, I think it's good for a person's brain to be in. And and for me, especially because I can think, I can think of nothing else but golf for every waking hour. And this has given me a little bit of a, something else to think about. So I don't know. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, this is where we're going to go for the last uh, segment today. Um, Richard Zokel was on our show last week, and Richard's talked to uh, Tim and I. I almost called you Fred. Richard's talked to both of us over the past few years about something that he's been promoting and trying to get off the ground called Mind Track. And, you know, we dabbled in it. He sent both of us kind of this prospectus and kind of explained what it was. And, and after the show last Wednesday... I reached out to him, but he, I just wanted to have a conversation about it. And he said, you know, I was going to, he said, Howard, I'm glad you got a hold of me because I was going to get a hold of you. And I said, why is that, Zoke? And uh, that was last Wednesday. And he's, <laughs> yes, he's been talking to me every day since. Because if there's somebody who's also muy obsesivo, it's Dick Zokel. So, Absolutely. So he gave me a, a, a tour level coaching session. 
I think Wednesday, Thursday, we talked. And he basically explained it much like he did on the show. And I'm going to explain it very simply by saying this. It's one of the most easy concepts that I've ever come across that's also hard to do. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, if you, if you haven't heard about it, go back and listen to last week's show. But when I, when I talk to people about decade, and I still do, I have a new uh, decade type client uh, I'm visiting with tomorrow. But decade is not, decades concept, conceptually is fairly simple, also hard to do, but it's kind of complicated as well. You know, I have to explain modifiers and yardages and things. But if you listen to last week's show, what I got a, a sort of a crash course in mind track and it basically boils down to this, and this is what you'll love, Timmy, is there's only two things you need to worry about. One is your assessment of a shot, and the second thing is your execution of a shot. The trick is to try and make every shot not part of a score, but to make every shot part of its own separate event. You know, he said this last week, and you've said this before. We all talked about, you know, playing one shot at a time. But if I said to you, how do you play one shot at a time? Well, you know, we've mindfulness and being in the present moment and all that stuff. But what MindTrack does is it gives you a scorecard that focuses you on the present tense every shot, every full swing, every pitch, every chip, every putt. And uh, so Richard coached me through this for a couple hours, Wednesday, Thursday. Then I went and played Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And all I did was I had a piece of paper. And I would write down, you know, hole number one, driver, you know, assessment, like where did I want to hit it? There's bunkers over there, so I'm going to try and hit a cut. So I would put down assessment. And then all you have to do is give yourself a score in three different categories. Excellent, satisfactory, unsatisfactory. Are you with me so far? And I'm then... following. And then... Can we do the tailor-made segment? Yeah, never. <laughs> that, that's, that's never not going to make me laugh. <laughs> um, and, and, and there's, an, so there's another, so, and did that, did you, did you gain a shot by that, by that execution or did you lose a shot? Obviously, you know, you can have an excellent assessment and then have an unsatisfactory execution, hitting it out of bounds. And then you just put down LS lost shot. And at the end of the round, I added up the number of gained shots, not strokes gained, but shots that were gained events hitting down the middle of the fairway hitting it on the green from 150 yards, whatever it was, against how many shots I lost. And then, as I said, you know, I, I didn't know what Richard wanted from me, but he wants to sort of, he wanted to use me as a bit of a guinea pig. So we talked before every round and after every round, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And he got me thinking about the way I thought about my game in a little bit different way. And yeah, I've just explained it simplistically, but there isn't really much more to it than that in terms of being fully present for every shot. And you have to be realistic. Like, you know, there were lots of times where I'm like, I guess I really didn't give that the full assessment because I wasn't a hundred percent sure what the shot, what the club was. And maybe I would have marked down sort of satisfactory, not the best, And it's interesting, over the weekend I saw a pattern develop, which was Hmm. the better assessment I get, or I gave, and again, not taking extra time, but the more I talked through the shot in my mind, generally, the execution worked out better. Makes sense, because you would put it in your terms, are you fully committed to this shot? And that's about it. I mean, I can tell you, I had some good scores, and I played some good golf, 
while all the while not really paying much attention to the scores I was putting on the card, but more like how good my my thinking was in that mind track mode. I will now take questions. <laughs> There's so much good stuff in that. I oh, love you'd it. love it. Man. And uh, I, I particularly like the idea of be, of making a shot its own event. Yes. Be- because, indeed, the $50,000 question or whatever it is, is how do you play one shot at a time or whatever you want to call it? And that, I think, is just a really interesting thing for um, the ego mind to get its head around. Let's make this the best we can. The thing that I always found interesting in the idea of make a good assessment and make a good execution, I can get the part about making a, as good an assessment as I can in terms of like saying, you know, being present to what's actually going on out there rather than, say, being stuck in my head. The part, and I'm, inter- I'm interested in this part. Um, in terms of making that execution, when he was on last week, he said, you know, how do you do it? I said, well, do the best I can. Because the the problem that I have and most golfers have, amateur golfers, is that when it comes to the execution part, they're trying really hard. They're, they're trying to think of a, a swing thought or do something with my elbow or my left hip, uh, make sure I finish my backswing, you know, all that stuff. So what I'm interested in, from your experience, how do you kind of work your – how do you make a good execution without trying too hard or thinking too much? Well, as uh, always, you've uh, given me something to think about. What Richard would say in the mind track world, basically you ask yourself, am I capable of making an excellent execution? And if the answer is no, then you better go back to the assessment because you've... Ah, there you go. You've obviously, like, if you're a 15 handicap and your assessment is you need to hit a 30-yard hook around a tree, you're not capable of making that shot. But as he said, you and I are fairly good golfers. If, you know, so your assessment better be a shot that you're 100% sure you can pull off or it's the wrong assessment. But, what, but I thought you brought up a good point with him, too, which is, hey, we're all just trying, you just reiterated it now, we're all just trying our best. And, uh, and I kept track of every shot I hit for 54 holes. Again, yo soy and muy obsesivo. Um, and I looked at those assessments, and generally, as I said, they were, there were a lot of, you know, mostly satisfactory to excellent assessments, and many satisfactory and excellent executions, but there was a lot of unsatisfactory and satisfactory executions because we're just human. I didn't pull it off or it didn't work out or I didn't make a good swing or as good a swing as I wanted. But I will give you, so does that answer that question? It does. So I'll give you two quick examples of where the mind track sort of mindfulness, we'll call it, where I learned, and that's another thing that Zogel was talking to me about, I think on the show or off the show, but the idea is to start to learn where these, we'll call them, you know, little assessment errors are so mm-hmm. that you learn to next time, you know, to sort of have a realistic, you know, feeling for, okay, now I've been in this situation before. Perfect example. I'm playing on Friday. It's a beautiful day. I birdie the seventh hole. I'm playing Piper's Heath. I birdie the seventh hole to go one under for the round. 
I'm playing really well. I, I hit my tee shot on this long par three. It's a tough par three, and it's playing about 170. Hit it in a bunker to a back right pin. And I, in my mind, I was thinking, oh, I just made a birdie. And it was a kind of bunker shot where it was well within my ability, but my assessment was, oh, I'm going to hit this short of the flag and let it run down to the hole. I, it wasn't a short side, but it was short-ish side. So I get in the bunker, and of course, you know what I've done. I, I make a swing, and I leave it in the bunker because I was trying to just get it out of the bunker. Then I get out of the bunker, look at where I look at the spot I was going to land it on, and go, "That's not the right spot, Howard," because that spot brings not getting it into the, out of the bunker in play. I go back in and I splash it out where I land the ball, basically at the flag, let it run out 15 feet, two putt, and make a double bogey. So there's a perfect example of my assessment was wrong. 100%. Exactly. That was an unsatisfactory assessment. I shouldn't have been trying to land it on a downslope. I mean, could I do it? Yeah, but by not doing it, I was penalized. That was a, that was in a situation where I needed to, and we would put it in decade terms of like, just get it out. You know, you can't two chip. You can't leave it in the bunker. That's the wrong shot. But what Mindtrack showed me is where my error was, was in my assessment of where that ball should land. Because sure enough, I go back into the bunker after I decide it's going to land by the flag and it's a no brainer shot for me. But the damage had been done and I made the double bogey. So that's a perfect that's a perfect microcosm of where you can learn from it because a lot of people would go, oh, I'm shitty at bunkers, <laughs> you know. Well, but exactly, it's like I, you you've mentioned this a few times is that Nicholas would say that ninety uh, percent of every shot is your preparation. It happens before you and take what the you're club talking out, about yeah. is right there. So you know it's right in line with you know just setting yourself up to the ball physically, but. One of the things that I know in my own game I used to really struggle with, and I still do from time to time, is I get in, I, I become internal. I mean, it's thinking about the thing I want to do and do with my wrist or something like that, as opposed to really paying attention to what's my lie here, which way is the grass growing, am I in balance? You know, what's you know, is there like I don't know if it's near the green. Is there is there bunker sand on the green that I need to deal with? Mm-hmm. So. The thing that I, the example I use a lot is like, rather than being interior, can I be out there? And the more I'm out in the world and and looking at what's going on and and really paying attention, I got to think that that makes for a better assessment and better preparation that leads to a better execution. As you would say, 100%. Um, and so through the weekend, again, I, I can't thank Richard enough. I, I mean, when, when I reached out to him and he said, I wanted to talk to you about your game. And, you know, I, I thought, you know, I didn't know what I thought. I didn't know what he was going to. I thought I'd talk to him once and then, you know, maybe a couple times. But he said he he literally before my Sunday round, I sent him like I did my Saturday round. And then I sent him a note Sunday morning. Hey, this is what happened. Uh, is Oak the next, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right away. I get out. Call me. <laughs> it's like, What? So he says, yeah, call me. I want to talk to you before you're around. So I go out on Sunday and I'm playing. And again, I'm, I played pretty well all three days. Friday, I shot 72. Saturday, I shot 77. And Sunday, I shot 74. And, you know, I'm decent. And, yeah. and okay. you know, and so Sunday, 
With this in mind, I'll tell you the second story. And then one of the things that we've talked about a lot on the show, whether it's Decade or Quiet Mind, Tim's uh, methodology, or anything in between, it's can you detach from the events that happened before? Again, what Mind Track is all about is making these separate events. So I'm going along for Sunday, having a decent round. And on 16, I miss an eight-foot putt for birdie. It lips out. You know, great. I had a great, you know, little putt. Good execution. I put down excellent execution, but I just didn't make the putt. No big deal. 17, I have a six-footer for to save my par. And I don't even hit the hole. <laughs> like, it's uh-huh. it's just, I don't, I sort of, it was such a bad stroke. It almost made me laugh. I'm almost, like, I'm, I'm almost, did you just get palsy? Like, it was the kind of like, like. I didn't, the ball didn't, it wasn't, it was as as if the hole wasn't on the green. It was such a bad putt. So I'm walking to the 18th tee and I'm in, in keeping in the idea of mind track and making it a separate event. I said, okay, Howard, what's the next shot you're going to hit? And let's start assessing that now. Let's make that the focus. Mm-hmm. And and because it was into the wind, it's a par five. I had to I had to fly a bunker. I had to make. You have to hit a very good drive to fly that bunker, and I did. Good drive, not the best second shot, but I was in no trouble. I laid up. I kind of kind of smothered it, but it was no trouble. It was a front pin, which we all know amateurs and pros alike suck too. So I made sure I was way left of that pin. There's no way I was going at the pin and have it go off the green. Good execution, all that. And I had a 15 foot putt downhill birdie putt and again where i really think mind track would help all of us is this another version of me would be thinking okay you missed the birdie putt on 16 you lipped out or you didn't you you spazzed out or whatever on 17 you know i would try and ram that birdie putt in or i try and make up for we've all been in there try and make up for those mistakes and once I assessed the putt, I, you know, I read it and I sort of even said out loud, I think this is not much in it. I said it to myself. And then all I said was, make the best execution you can. Like, make a stroke. Like, that was my focus because the last putt I made looked like I'd never putted before. And, and <laughs> the ball went in the, as I said to Zolkl after, I said it was like the ball got in the way of my, I just executed the best I could because my focus wasn't, I have to make this putt. My focus was, I need to make, I want to make a good execution. And the ball went in the hole. Nice. Which is a nice way to end the story, but even if it hadn't, it wasn't going four feet by, as I said to him, I'm not marking that ball again. I had no stress on the tap in that that ball, if it hadn't gone in, would have gone a couple of inches by the hole. So, I really got a lot out of the experience and, you know, I would share it with the audience because, like I said, the the system is simple, but it will be, the challenge in it is sticking to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the the satisfaction of hitting a good shot is such a key, we were talking about that with somebody recently, that just the feeling of hitting a solid shot, whether it's a drive or a putt, that counts for so much. And sometimes they go in and sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. But it's that feeling of solidness. And so making good execution after a good assessment, that it, it just makes so much sense. Um, the one thing I want to ask you quickly is, so I remember uh, I experimented for, I don't know how many rounds it was with MindTrack. And I think it was, I think I had the app. Um, but I found that it, it kind of took me in and out of the game, particularly the social part of it. Like after a round, I you know did it in my phone, and um, I didn't like that as much. But 
maybe it's I don't know. It's it's sort of you're doing it on paper. See, right? that's the thing is like the app right now has been uh, put on hold. And I don't have an iPhone, so I couldn't even use the app. So what all I did was like, you know, I've got a, my little yardage book and it's got my decade, you know, card in there. Oh, and so it's, it's got, like keeping score, eh? It, it literally, and, and, and I had three rounds with great guys and I talked all the time. So what I would do is I would just put my little note in while the other person's playing. So I didn't do it right. Sometimes I didn't do it immediately, but I would do, I would sort of hit my drive and then walking to the next shot, just as the other guys were getting ready, I'd pull it out and do it because... Because I, I, I will tell you the truth with Decade, I got to the point last year where I found that was taking me out of the game too much. Yep. Was entering it all the time, you know, somewhat obsessively. But this was, I found much easier on my mental, you know, I, I didn't take me, because it was really easy, because it was a basically pretty simple. You know, I'd, I'd reflect on how good my assessment was. What was my target? Did I did I have a good sense of where I wanted to hit it? And then how did I execute it? And by the way, the shot lost and shot gain isn't just you made a birdie or a bogey. It's did that shot put you in trouble? Like, you know, like I made a bad swing on the second shot there in that par five. I smothered this seven iron, but I had such a good plan that even though I pulled it a little bit, I didn't pull it into any trouble. I was on the fairway, not in the hay, not in a bunker. So I didn't lose any shots by it. But let's say I had pulled that into the bunker. Not only it was a bad execution, it's a lost shot event. It didn't lose mm-hmm. me a stroke, but it counts as a lost shot because it put me in trouble. Potentially affecting my score, but not all shots gained or shots lost are score affecting. You can give yourself a shot gained for hitting a, a nice drive in the middle of the fairway. Cause that's given you, cause you've put your, that's a gained shot. You've, you've done, you've executed it well. And that's why I like it because it, most people who are listening can get, can get most of it from what we've talked about. It really yeah, isn't that so difficult. In, in what I, I like about this, like I, I've, Back in the uh, back in the nineties, when I was writing about golf, uh, Dick was on the tour, mm-hmm. and uh, I would talk to him occasionally. And um, I remember him saying the importance of of being present. And I'm not sure he used the word mindful at the time, but he's always been huge on this on the psychology of golf. And I love how he's come up with this this system in which. It makes it a bit more tangible for people to get their their head around how to yeah be more mindful and, and be more present and be less as he would say you know thrown into to the rabbit hole of golf hell and the mm-hmm. anxieties and everything so it's it's definitely worth checking out well i'll tell you what i really feel pretty grateful that he's given me all this time because the guy's won on the pga tour and yeah. he's been thinking deeply i mean he's I, I told you before the show he's a big fan of ours and really has listened to a lot of our shows because I think he feels in us, you know, we're, 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 we're kind of all digging the same kindred spirits. Yeah, for sure. And, and because we think so deeply about this stuff, I think he's, he finds it uh, comforting <laughs> knowing <laughs> that he's not the only one. Um, and thanks to him, we're going to have a guy he works with named uh, Raymond Pryor to a lot of people have heard of him. who has got a new book, which I went out and bought. Just like that. I pre-ordered it. It's called Golf Beneath the Surface, The New Science of Golf Psychology. And Raymond works with MindTrack, among others. In fact, Raymond recently was on uh, Be the Right Club Today podcast with Hal Sutton. Yeah. 
Uh, very, go look it up. Very interesting. Uh, speaking of uh, good golf resources, Quiet Mind Golf is uh, being readied and will be uh, available this summer before yeah, well, uh, before the O'Connor's anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So, what were you going to say? I've just put on my website, O'ConnorGolf.ca. Uh, you'll see uh, when you go on, there's um, I've got um, a promotion up for um, it's a four week course. It's called Quiet Mind Golf. Lower your score with less noise in your head. And essentially over four weeks, I'll uh, teach, coach you how to apply mindfulness to golf. So you can better manage your thinking and emotions and that, that kind of thing. So it's just a it's a it's a four week course. And um, the idea is for people who maybe dabbled with meditation but didn't really understand it or they like the idea of what we're talking about around mindfulness and applying to golf, it'd be an opportunity. So, so uh, yeah, I invite you to check that out on uh, O'ConnorGolf.ca. Okay, man. Uh, thanks to uh, Robert Dameron, always a great guest. He's got... Uh <laughs> it's funny. You know. I love. I love. He's Robert. so good. He's got so many great stories. He's got, and and the fact that like you know he won on the on the PGA Tour yeah. in the time of Tiger Woods. Uh, thanks to Oscar Bravo, who is OscarBravo.com. These really are unique items. Uh, like they're they're literally numbered golf polos. Uh, go check it out at WhoIsOscarBravo.com and Tim. Just because this will make you feel better. This program is also brought to you by Taylor Made Golf and the all new Taylor Made. Yes! <laughs> the all new Taylor Made Stealth 2. Introducing the all new Taylor Made Stealth 2, Stealth 2 Plus, and Stealth 2 HD Carbon Woods. Designed with more carbon, more forgiveness. Learn more at TaylorMadeGolf.ca. Hey, don't they have a ball with a stripe on it or something? I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, when is Dameron going to be on? <laughs> uh, Humble and Fred uh, Radio, go check that out. That's my uh, regular gig, and we'll see you all next week. Competition in other places But the horns, they blow in that sound